Zechariah chapter 14, and we'll begin reading today with the last sentence of verse 5, and we'll read down to verse 9. Then the Lord, O my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. We've been considering this 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah. And we have seen, I hope, that whatever partial fulfillment this may have had already historically, uh, nevertheless, there certainly seems to be an allusion here um, to the complete fulfillment in the last day. Uh, A number of these verses, a number of these phrases are repeated in the New Testament. And uh, there's enough here to, to certainly conclude, I believe, that uh, these things ultimately will be fulfilled in the last day. I was just thinking about this phrase, the last day. Sometimes we need to be reminded uh, how different our view is from that of the rest of the world. Um, Multitudes and multitudes of people right now in the world are materialists. And their view of history is is that things just kind of happen and go along, and they're not going toward any goal or any purpose. They didn't come from any goal or any purpose. They're just happening. In Eastern religion, which millions upon millions of people in this world, billions of people follow, uh, you have not the idea of things just happening quite, but you have the idea of endless circles. And the goal of life is to escape from the circle. Uh, Reincarnation is not some good thing. The idea in reincarnation is to try to quit being reincarnated and to uh, quit coming back into this world and kind of blend into the nothingness of impersonality. But the message of the Bible, and we ought to be conscious of this, we ought to to have this hit us and have it be something that we have to think about and evaluate and face. Are we going to subscribe to this? Are we going to believe what this book says? What this book says is, is that history is not endless circles. It's not this meandering path to nowhere. But it is like an arrow being shot toward a goal, toward a mark. History is moving with purpose and direction, and it's moving toward an end. And that's the biblical worldview. And that's the only way it could be if there is an infinite personal God that is controlling history. Things have to have a purpose, they have to make sense, and they have to be going somewhere. 
But it's amazing, especially for us here in America, where we don't have to think much. Now, the, the slaves did. Tim and I were talking about that last week, I think, where the slaves, or some, somebody, maybe it was one of the students in the Bible study, but the slaves were being faced constantly with the fact that they didn't have anything in this world, and so they're singing about the next world all the time. And uh, whenever persecution comes, then it starts becoming real what the Bible has to say about this world. The form of this world is passing away. This world passes away. The world passes away. The lust thereof. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And uh, whenever you are in a situation where you're under a lot of persecution, you're not getting much out of this world, then you start thinking about the realities. But the problem is, for us in America, is that we have the temptation to just kind of think this world is solid and lasting and it's just going to kind of go on forever. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it? John the Baptist, here's this strange man out in the desert, um, clothed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. And... um, Uh, crying out to the world to repent. But here this strange man is, and he's saying, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's thinking in his mind, you see, he's living his life with the idea that there's this approaching storm at the end of every man's life and at the end of history, there's this judgment that's coming. And that's the view of the Scripture. There's wrath that's coming. And so we need to flee from the wrath that's coming. A man is a fool to think that wrath is ahead of him. And wrath might even fall upon him that very day before the day is over. And yet just act like nothing matters. That's, that's folly. That's insanity. And so the Bible message is repeatedly this message drawing us back to where everything's moving. History itself is moving in this direction towards the judgment, towards the end, and towards the goal of heaven and of hell. And so we need to order our lives accordingly. And that's what uh, this prophecy of Zechariah that we're looking at right now has to do with, the last day. And he says here in verse 5, Then the Lord, O my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. There is a day when the Lord will return with his holy angels. And I was uh, amazed again just to, to realize how much the Lord Jesus Christ talked about this. Let me just share a few examples with you from Matthew, and you don't need to turn to these. But just listen how much this came up in Matthew 13, 40 through 42, the parable of the tares. Jesus says, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. Now think of this. This carpenter of Nazareth says that He has angels. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom. Not only does He have angels at His disposal, but He has a kingdom. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here he is in his parables teaching that he is going to come with 
His holy angels. And again in Matthew 16, uh, verse 27, He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and will then recompense to every man according to his deeds. And again in Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31, He says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels, His angels again, with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And then again in Matthew 25, verse 31, He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, Then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. Uh, When we were up on campus last week, um, I got to talk with a Jewish girl and uh, I I didn't know quite how to start out the conversation. I said, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And uh, she began to tell me, you know, He was a good man and He taught love and acceptance for everybody and that kind of thing. And I was able to just uh, share with her a little bit about who the real Jesus is. The real Jesus did not go around carrying lambs and teaching love and acceptance. He did love and accept. And uh, he was the hardest on religious people. But the real Jesus, now isn't this amazing? Think of it, think of this, think of the Lord Jesus Christ among the religious teachers of the world. Did Confucius ever say Confucius will return at the end of the world with his holy angels and all of the nations will be gathered before him? That would be absurd to think of him saying something like that. Did Buddha ever say, I'm going to come back at the end of the world with all my holy angels? It, I mean, any religious teacher that would say that, you'd laugh them off. The face of the map, you know, you would just ridicule someone like that. But the Lord Jesus Christ says it as a matter of course. He says a lot bigger things than that. You know, He says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was born, I am. He says, I existed before the foundation of the world. He says, I have the power to forgive sins. All of those claims that He made, well, this was one of them. He talked repeatedly. I've just quoted three or four passages from one gospel. He talked repeatedly about how one day he's going to come with his holy angels and judge the whole world. And that's what we read here in Zechariah. The Lord, oh my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. So his emphasis is exactly the same as John the Baptist. He says there's an end that's coming. And I'm going to be the one that is involved in the judgment at that time. And when that day comes, back to Zechariah 14, when that day comes, cataclysmic things will begin to happen. And that's what we read about last week in verses 6 and 7. Uh, things, there will be, <coughs> uh, things take place that are cosmic in dimension. And that's what. Um, uh, the Bible represents, in, and actually in uh, symbolical language in many ways, but the Bible represents this in terms of the sun and the moon and the stars. And um, the basic idea is, 
is that in the awful presence of God, who dwells in unapproachable light, and when He comes in judgment, the, the very sun is going to look pale by comparison. Everything's going to grow dim in the presence of God. I think that's the basic idea. In the, in the awesome presence of God, the stars are going to fall out of the sky. And I, again, uh, much of this is figurative, but uh, uh, it's talking about cataclysmic things taking place. And if we try to analyze it too much, you, you lose the power of it. Jesus, you remember, talked about, he said, in that day the, the light of the sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, and the stars will fall from the sky. And so there's a day coming. Whatever this means, I don't know. We don't know all that it means. It certainly means some things physically because there's going to be, Peter says, the, ele- the elements will melt with fervent heat. This world will be dissolved and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Some of it may be referenced physically. Some of it's talking about spiritually. Jesus said the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But uh, what we ought to get in our mind is this. One day the stars are going to fall. That's really what we ought to have in our mind. I know there was a song that we used to listen to that uh, said that, but you don't hear it very often. Are you ready for the day when the stars are going to fall out of the sky? And when you think about that and what's, what that must mean, uh, none of us are very ready for it. But what will it be to not be a Christian, to not have Christ as your friend, and to have Him as your judge instead? <clears throat> Joel 3.15, The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Isaiah 24.23, Then the moon will be ashamed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Why would the sun be ashamed? Because there's one much more glorious than the sun that's going to be ruling, you see. That's the, that's the idea. Jesus in Matthew 24, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of earth will mourn because of Him. So, um, what a situation. The day of judgment coming that history is moving toward. But, But then we saw, not only will there be a day of judgment, but we saw from verse 8 that there will be also a day of unending blessing for the people of God. Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Not talking about some literal river that's watering the desert. It's talking about this figurative river that we read about in numerous passages in the prophets and also in the book of Revelation. uh, That uh, it says wherever that river goes, everything will live in its presence. Talking about this river of the water of life, the Spirit of God. Um never failing, never ending supply of the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus said to that woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, all the way to eternal life. And that's what this river here is talking about. The endless supplies forever and ever 
unfailing supply of the Spirit of God flowing from the throne of God. And wherever that river goes, there'll be life. Well, with that then, we come today to the verse that I'd like for us to look at today, verse 9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, this is what's going to happen. The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. And you notice the words, the only, are supplied. The Lord will be... He'll be the one. He'll be one. And His name one. What is this talking about? Uh, We know, first of all, that God is already king over all the earth. He is right now king over all the earth. In fact, right here in Zechariah, we've looked at this back in chapter 4. And uh, verse 14, he says, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So he's Lord of the whole earth right now. And in Zechariah 6 and verse 5, The angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. If I could just um, read to you the words of Nebuchadnezzar when he came to his senses. It sums it up pretty well. This is what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. He says, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's reigning right now, you see. He's reigning over all the earth right now. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Uh, Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. So God God is ruling over everything right now. And that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's ruling. He's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places right now, far above all principalities and powers and every name that's named. But the problem is, it is a matter of faith right now that God's ruling. I mean, oftentimes, everything seems to be going the other way, doesn't it? Uh, Truth and right forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne is the way it seems like right now. And we see uh, uh, evil triumphing in many situations, apparently triumphing, and yet we believe and we know that it's true that God is king over all the earth. But what's this verse talking about? Well, it's talking about the day whenever He will begin to manifest His reign truly over all the earth where people can see Um a good example, 1 Corinthians 15.25, it says Christ must reign, He's reigning right now, He must reign until all of His enemies be put under His feet. So He's reigning right now, but the, it's being worked out that all enemies are going to be put under His feet. And whenever all the enemies are put under His feet, then this verse will be fulfilled. The Lord will be king over all the earth. God will be acknowledged as king. 
And so what is history moving toward? It's moving toward the day when God will be acknowledged as king over all the earth. That's the vision that the Bible portrays. There's a day coming when every single... Now think of this. There's a day coming when every single individual in this world will gladly and joyfully acknowledge that God is king over the entire world from one end of the earth to the other. Um, maybe we'll sing that song at the uh, at the end. But Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. Uh, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till sun shall rise and set no more. Um, the Lamb will overcome them. We read in Revelation last week. The Lamb will overcome them because He is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me just read. Let's let's turn to this one. Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> and um, beginning at verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become... I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 11. What did I... Did I say Revelation? Five. Oh, I'm sorry. wonder if I've got it written down wrong. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give Thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and thy wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets and to the saints and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So isn't this something? God takes His great power and He reigns. So Zechariah looks for this day when God will be king over all the earth. And notice what it says here in verse 9 of Zechariah 14. In that day the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. What's the significance of this? Well, I think two things that I want us to look at here today. First of all, all false gods and all idols of every kind will be destroyed. And now if we think of idols as being some kind of physical god, that's true too. All idols will be destroyed. But all the idols of the hearts of men will be destroyed. And in the entire world, there will not be one idol left. There will not be one person that is not in their heart giving God the proper place and worshiping Him as God. Every idol will be gone. And God will be 
first and only as God in the heart of every person. That means that if you're living in this day, if you're one that will be part of this group, what it means is, is that you've come up to a person, any person you meet, and you know before you ever start talking to them that God is number one in their heart. And they don't have anything whatsoever that's blown out of proportion. That's taking a place that it shouldn't take in their heart. Not only that, but you won't have anything whatsoever in your heart that's vying for the throne. God will be on the throne and sin will be gone. And so what a day this is uh, when, when God is the only one. He's the only one. And everybody is delighting to rejoice in God. And every created thing that God has made that we tend to make into an idol will have its proper place exactly. It's a wonderful thing to think of this. Now, God is determined that He's going to be the only one. He will brook no rivals. What do we call that? God's determination that He'll be the only one. His what? His jealousy. His jealousy. Um, Often, jealousy is not a good thing in men. But with God, it's always a good thing. In fact, it's one of His crowning virtues. Let's turn to this in Ezekiel, um, in uh, Exodus chapter 34. You remember Moses asked that he could see God's glory. And um, back in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And so down in in chapter 34, God does this, he fulfills this promise in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord, and then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Now he's proclaiming the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so Moses makes haste and bows to the Lord. And this conversation begins. And immediately God brings this up in verse verse 12. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, lest it become a snare in your midst, but rather you're to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, that's the way we're to deal with these things, and cut down their asherahs. For you shall not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is jealous. Now he's just been talking about what his name is, and here he continues it. In a way, you could say he sums it up. 
The Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone invites you to eat of his sacrifice and you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten god. So all this thing of jealousy has to do with God buying for his rightful place as God. God will be the only one. Uh, This is part of God's name. He's jealous. Now you've got to understand jealousy rightly, and it's not talking about anything that's like human jealousy that is sinful. But it's if God were not jealous, if He were not a jealous God, He would not be a good God. In fact, He wouldn't even be God. You think of what a husband would be like. What kind of husband would it be that would allow an adulterer to set foot in the home and not have it bother him? He doesn't care about that. What kind of love relationship would that show? What kind of a husband would that be? Uh, Well, how much more with God? And he's jealous not only for the marriage relationship with his people, but he's jealous for his holy name. Now let's look at some more verses and then we'll talk about this just a little. Ezekiel 36. Beloved, if God didn't care about his name, he wouldn't be God. This is something, isn't it? Ezekiel 36 and verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. It is a blessed thing if the name of God is tied up in your life, if His reputation is at stake. Because He said, I'm not going to do it for your sake, but I'll do it for my own namesake. In chapter 39, just a couple pages over, Ezekiel 39, verse 25, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And what? I shall be jealous for my holy name. That's the reason. God's honor is at stake in us. Let me read you a couple of verses from Isaiah. You can just listen to these. Isaiah 42.8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, anyone, anyone, nor my praise to graven images. And in 48.11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? There's this question in the Westminster Catechism 
What is the chief end of man? What's the reason man was created? Well, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But if we could say the question, what is the chief end of God? And you can't even really speak about God in that way. But the chief end of God is to glorify Himself. Everything He does, He does in order to glorify Himself. If He didn't act in order to glorify Himself, He would be guilty of pursuing an unworthy and base and contemptible goal. The highest thing that He can possibly do is glorify Himself. And so again, I say this thing of God's jealousy, it has to do just with the fact that He's God. Because He is God, it would be wrong for Him to do anything but vindicate His name. And how thankful we can be uh, if we belong to Him that God is determined that He's going to be our God and our only God and not allow any rivals to reign in our heart. There's a day coming when God will be the only one and all the problem that we have with idolatry will be over with and it will be seen for what it is. And it says... In numerous scriptures, they're going to take their idols and they'll throw them in every direction. Now, Christians, it's already begun. The work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant starts out cleansing us from all our filthiness and from all our idols, but it's a process. But for the Christian, good news, all those idols are going to be gone, every single one of them, completely gone. You'll never be bothered with one of them again. Because in that day, the Lord will be the only one. And His name the only one. So this verse speaks of the destruction by grace of every idol. In the heart of the Christian, it will be a great rejoicing. In the heart of the lost man, it will be a shocking thing to see that he has wasted his life bragging and boasting about and giving himself to things that are destroyed, utterly, completely wiped out, worthless in the sight of God. Secondly, this speaks uh, not only of the destruction of all idols, but it speaks of the perfect unity of God's people. Let me find my place here again. The perfect unity of God's people. There's a day coming when the Lord will be one and His name one. Absolute, perfect unity. At the present time, even among Christians, God's name is not one perfectly. I mean, in, in reality it is, but in practice we have not entered into it. Um, every Christian knows God personally. That's a promise of the New Covenant. Every person, every Christian has been taught of God personally, and yet in many ways, you know, you say, well, what's this verse mean? So-and-so says this, so-and-so says that, and you're still facing it. We don't have a perfect understanding of God. We don't have perfect unity. We don't have perfect knowledge of the Lord. It's, It's real, it's substantial, it's glorious, but it's not yet perfect. Just a couple verses here in closing. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about this. Ephesians 4.11 He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That tells you how long God is going to have apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and so on around until we are perfected. That hadn't happened yet. But he says, until we, pertain, until we attain to the fullness uh, of this stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so, um, we're not yet there. We're all still very imperfect in our understanding of God and of His truth. But then there will be total unity. Think of what a thing it is when every Christian will say the exact same thing about God and have a clear understanding. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There will be perfect with one voice, with one mouth. Uh, we will then glorify God. One more scripture, Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah 3 and verse <clears throat> verse 8 and verse 9. Now, I hope that as we read some of these verses, you can get, begin to get a feel for how these prophets say the same types of things. And here's Zephaniah. Now, this little book of Zephaniah, three chapters long, some amazing things in it. But here's what... God says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up to the prey. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations. Now we just read about that in Zechariah 14. You remember? God says, I'm going to gather the nations. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. Why? To pour out on them my indignation. All my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Verse 9. For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Now that starts in the new covenant, but it's perfected in this day. Everybody will have purified lips. They'll be able to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, just this one name, His name will be one, and to serve Him in complete unity in that day. Well, um, amazing, isn't it? The things that Zechariah said before the Messiah ever came. I mean, here's this prophet Zechariah. I don't think he probably understood a lot of what he was even saying. He foretells the coming of the king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He foretells his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. He foretells that the shepherd's going to be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. All these many things. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The opening of a fountain for sin and uncleanness in one day. And the taking away of the iniquity of the land in one day. Many other passages. Well, here he foretells what's going to happen when God, when the Lord will return 
and all his holy ones with him, the sky, the powers of the heaven shaken, the streams of living water flowing everywhere, and God reigning as king with all other idols gone and perfect unity among the people of God, one name, one Lord. And that's what the Bible says history is moving toward. If we don't like the idea of having God as our king and having one Lord and one God, we're in bad shape because we'll be part of those that will be judged. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice at the thought of not having any idols and of Your name being the only one and of You being King throughout the whole earth and of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray that even now that You continue this work of destroying the idols in our lives. As each thing comes to light, we pray that You'd help us to cast it out and to throw it away. We pray that You would cleanse us from all our filthiness and all our idols. Lord, I pray for those that are here that are still rebelling against Your kingship. And uh, I just pray that You'd cause to fasten upon them the fact that... uh, there is a real direction and purpose and goal in history. Things aren't just wandering aimlessly. And that it is appointed unto every man once to die and after this a judgment. Lord, make it real. We, otherwise, these are just words. We can't even, even as Christians, a lot of times we can't even take in and believe and have impact us the reality of what is real. We pray that you would do that by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing that song, Jesus Shall Reign Where'er the Sun, 190 in the Redemption Hymn. Okay. Okay. 190. Let's stand on this one.